one of the things that compassion practice does, well, from a spiritual sense, it reminds you of the interconnectedness of all things. But in a neurobehavioral sense, it allows you to feel sufficiently emotionally safe that you can have wisdom because you're not, you know, I have to obey whatever's going through my mind. It lets you like slow down and have a broadened perspective where you can go, wait a minute, what in the world has been happening? What do I want? Who am I? That was Dennis Tersh, and this is Mentally Flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Dennis Tersh. He's a clinical psychologist and a founding director of the Center for Compassion-Focused Therapy. He has been described as one of the country's foremost leaders in compassion training in evidence-based psychotherapy. Dr. Tersh is an author of six books and numerous peer-reviewed articles on mindfulness, acceptance, and compassion. He also has a rich personal history of spiritual practice that we dive into in this podcast. I was so excited to discover Dennis and his work, as he has such a beautiful way of integrating Eastern wisdom with Western science. In this episode, we explore the development of Dr. Tersh's spiritual interest and how he navigated some transformational experiences, how he integrated spirituality into his scientific endeavors, how to live in the world in a compassionate way with both ourselves and others, the value of recognizing our own hypocrisy, we touch on some teachings from one of our shared teachers, Ram Das, and we end with a powerful guided compassion-focused meditation. I really enjoyed this conversation and was left with some great pieces of wisdom for reflection. I think you'll enjoy it too. I want to thank all of you for being here and supporting the show. It's been such a fun journey sharing these episodes with you. If you would like to show your support, it would mean a lot to me if you subscribed and left a review. You can also follow me on Instagram at Mentally Flexible to connect and get some more bonus content. All right. Well, thanks again for being here, everyone. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Dennis Tersh. So, yeah, so thanks again for doing this, Dennis. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Would you mind just giving us a summary of who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Dennis Tersh, and uh, I'm uh, nominally the founding director of the Center for Compassion-Focused Therapy in New York. I'm a former uh, past president of the uh, Association for Contextual Behavior Science. I'm a psychologist, author, and trainer around compassion-focused therapy acceptance and commitment therapy, but more broadly, mindfulness, acceptance, and compassion in personal transformation and psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. I've found when I take a step back and look at the people that I admire most or most resonate with my heart is 
are individuals who have this deep understanding of both Eastern wisdom traditions and Western science and are able to integrate those and communicate them well, like people like Ram Dass and Alan Watts. And Mm. ever since discovering you and your work, you fell into that category. So it's been so cool learning about you and reading your work and hearing your talks. Oh, thanks so much. I mean, that's some wonderful uh, company to even be in, in, in some uh, relationship with, you know, there was our inspirational figures in my life. And as a, you know, pretty much lifelong uh, Buddhist and contemplative meditation practitioner and for the last 30 years, a psychologist, like uh, that you, you really, you really tuned into a personal um, and professional mission. That's sort of what it's all about for, for me and, and our family. Mm-hmm. I heard you say that your first introduction to uh, a spiritual practice, which you didn't know at the time was when you were a kid around 10 years old with your uncle. Would you share that story? Yeah. Uh, my uncle, uh, Mike Hughes had been uh a paratrooper in 82nd airborne in the triple nickel, which is the first, uh, you know, African-American paratrooper unit. Uh, there's always some confusion as to whether he saw active duty or whether they were still doing dangerous things, putting out fires, uh, in the Pacific Northwest that were from like fire bombs, apparently during world war two. Uh, he had some stories about being in Europe, you know, in a covert way, but it was very, I kind of add that little color because he was this sort of magical figure, this intellectual African-American, you know, jazz musician, enthusiast, and Zen practitioner. And when we met, because he he was marrying my my, uh, mom's sister, he really, like, just connected with me. I was kind of an anxious kid. I was a nerdy kid. And Uh, I was really into Star Wars and things like that. And he kind of said, well, you know, Star Wars Jedi, they're really based on like Zen monks and samurai. And I, you know, I can teach you Jedi training and, and started having me like stare at a wall to be able to, you know, have Jedi powers and things like that. (laughs) And that was, uh, my introduction to, uh, training the mind. Uh, it was very, very clever of him. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy. Mm -hmm. How did your interest or practice uh, develop from that time on? I think it was always a, a an area of life that seemed very real to me that people weren't acknowledging. You know, uh, do you prefer Thomas or Tom or Tommy? What do you like? Tom's good. Okay, Tom. Thanks. So, Tom, like, you know, I was raised uh, in a marginally Catholic household, let's say, like wasn't really practicing. I have some Jewish ancestors, some Catholic ancestors. But really, if there was a religious practice, it was Catholic. And, you know, I'd go to church and I, I was actually very moved by things like prayer and the idea of God and just the experience of connecting to something larger yourself. And it was the 70s, so it was like post-counterculture uh, you know, kind of thing. It was still in the, in the air. And there's a lot of uh, influence even in the church about God being love and God being everywhere and love being everywhere. And then when I started to learn about, you know, as a really young kid, 10 years up about Eastern spirituality, the idea that there was this field of living essence, that was what we come from. Like Alan Watts says, we come 
uh, out of the universe and not into it. And then learning about evolutionary science and how we are a part of a flow of evolving life. Um, that all felt like physical to me, like it felt like physically instantiated. So I was always drawn to like really drawn, <laughs> intensely drawn to uh, Western esotericism and Kabbalah and Sufism, and Gurdjieff, and even things like Aleister Crowley and ceremonial magic, and just all through high school and uh, college. And it was just a lot of really profound, strange experiences that I had. And some some mentors and teachers where there were really transformational experiences. And also going through like difficult family trauma and painful emotional stuff. And then at a certain point in life, after graduating and thinking I'm going to go into international relations law and, you know, still being a musician and stuff, I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on? You know, I had a couple of these real personal life altering experiences and just realized that continuing to pursue contemplative and meditative practice and developing myself that way and, um, becoming a psychologist and then taking a, you know, a Western lens to that uh, around the idea of compassion was what I wanted to do. And this was like the late eighties, early nineties. And, and, and there really wasn't a road that was established along those lines at all. Then well, obviously lots of people found roads and built roads and shared, you know, pathways, but it was really to account for the transformational influence of, uh, shifts in consciousness and and also um, open compassion flow in relationships and how that made my life more beautiful and more whole. And I thought, well, that's a good way to live your life. If you can do that with your whole life, then I'd, I'd like to do that. Mm. What I aim to do. So you had um, a significant amount of time where you were interested in practicing different uh, spiritual uh, domains before you went into becoming a scientist and going into psychology? Yeah, I mean, uh, particularly around Buddhism and yoga and um, uh, uh, more serious kind of study was around Tendai Vajrayana Buddhism and something called Mikyo, which is like a uh, visualization uh, kind of based meditations from Japan that are very similar, like Tibetan practices like Chenrezig and things like that. And there was a specifically a couple of years, you know, after, you know, 15 years of just all sorts of different exploration as a kid and a teenager in college, I had a couple of years of pretty intense work around uh, that Japanese Vajrayana Buddhist stuff. And that's when, you know, as, as a, a mentor of mine says, like the top, top of my head blew off for mm. one of the times it blew off. I was like, Whoa, Hey, I can't, can't stay in the direction I'm going. You know, I mean, I had a whole other road. I was, I was involved in a family business, which was going to be expanding. And I was like, you know, um, in a, in a different the first time I got married to my college uh, girlfriend and like, I was just on this one road, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, it all just blew up. I just had to, you know, after the more intense Buddhist practice, it sort of meant that I had to have a different life. And then, you know, several lives later, uh, we're having this discussion. <laughs> now. Wow. When you, when you say that you had some experiences, I kind of forget your phrasing blew your head off. Could you describe a little bit more what that was like for you experientially at that time of your life? Well, the, um, the, the, the 
men, the, one of my mentor buddies and like friends now is a, is a well-known guy in music uh, work. Robert Fripp is his name. He plays with the band King Crimson, and he's just an astonishing human being, one of the sort of most um, grounded and interesting and kind of funny guys, also this master musician, and, and a re- has a really, really rigorous personal practice. And he used that term for uh, in the 1970s when he sort of like, got very involved with contemplative practice. And there was a period where he said the top of his head blew off. And, and I've just kind of stolen that idea and cribbed it. But there were a few times in my life where, like I, many people have had these experiences, where my sense of self really radically shifted. Sometimes after periods of great uh, practice and intense meditation, and sometimes after periods of long retreats or scholarship, and then sometimes just after like periods of personal discipline or beginning to establish sobriety or, or just life change or almost like catastrophic or crisis oriented life change. And, and the, the, the warmth of, uh, of, of being and identifying less with an individual I, uh, like people describe in ego dissolving experiences with psychedelics. You know, but for me, while I've had a, some experience with psychedelics that were like that, there have been a few discrete times in my life which were usually tied to big changes that followed, where something happened, and my sense of self and uh, being really shifted. And then I thought, well, I would like to live from this place. Like, how do I live from a place of a different experience of being? Uh, rather than, oh, that was cool. Now let me immediately go back to, you know, being the same, you know, schmo that I usually am. I will remain that schmo one way or another. That's, in, uh, you know, that's inevitable. And I'm not in a hurry to <laughs> turn in my schmo card and, you know, leave Earth. But, uh, you know, but like, how can I allow for a connection to remain? You know, how can I uh, remain proceeding from a place that feels like I'm proceeding from loving awareness and simultaneously hold on to an experience of being that is authentic and true and healing and more an experience of interbeing and like not hang on to that experience. There's a lot of admonitions from spiritual teachers to not hang on to those experiences, but, um, but create the causes and conditions in my life that allow me to proceed from that without like letting go of it. Like there are a few times earlier in my life, like in teenage years and in college where like I would have like some really big shifts and then I would have to stop knowing that experience because it felt too crazy. It was like I, I could either go, you know, to a psychiatric hospital forever <laughs> or I could, you know, decide to go be like a tarot card reader or, you know, which is all due respect to tarot card readers. Like it just wasn't the gig that I thought I'd be okay with, you know, like I just wasn't at all psychologically uh, sound enough to not either romanticize or be crushed under the weight of a shift of self experience. And then, you know, with, you know, a lot of uh, time that we just continually do, like just a lot of personal practice, you can kind of contain those experiences and then share them. And to me, psychotherapy is the number one contemplative practice, transformational practice, like being a therapist and living like my wife, Laura, and 
I like our whole lives uh, are this. Our whole lives are mindfulness, compassion, acceptance, personal transformation, personal awakening. It informs how we cook, our parenting, the kind of music we play, how we exercise. It's the, you know, the interior design. <laughs> Just like everything is about remembering that we're, that ultimately we're loving awareness and that you and I are one being. And, you know, and sharing that with people living inside a ongoing discussion, series of discussions with others that, that ultimately boil down to there not being any others. And, and that is facilitative of healing and health. I think. I find it interesting that you had the, this, these awakening experiences where you connected to that, whatever we want to call that. It's hard to put a name to it, that space in you and wanted to cultivate that greater. I find it interesting that you, that led you to going into um, like science. Uh, Did you find that it was, hard to fit that into the the model of psychology at that time i think it was really hard but it was less but it was it wasn't impossible you know and maybe if i had uh like a bunch of friends or a family that would like was like normalizing those kind of experiences or you know like even a therapist who could like like say hey buddy like this isn't this is something that happens. Like people have personal awakenings and sometimes those are like deeply spiritual and sometimes they're, you know, about a need for change in your life. And there's so much more to you than you realize so much to all all of us. And, um, you know, uh, like in the Zen tradition, which I've, you know, I've spent many years in, in the Zen tradition of a Dharma holder and Zen, uh, the organization named Zen Garland, who I, you know, I'm not working with anymore. Uh, I was on like the priest training path there, and like until very recently, until about a year ago, good people there. But in the Zen tradition, that's like it's almost rigorously dismissed. <laughs> it's like yes, no problem, no, you know, go go clean the kitchen, you know, like you know, like oh, sorry, waves of light move through your mind. That's good. Well, that's uh, that's fantastic. You know, knock yourself out, buddy. Like you know, the toilet's clogged. Here's a plunger. You know, <laughs> so so like there was not any real context other than the context I'd read about. And it was sort of pre-internet, you know, just barely pre-internet at that point. So I was like, well, what do you do? You know, I I don't want to let go of this, you know, and I don't want to, um, it was too much of a strange cultural thing to go into like at that point, like a spiritual community or something, it would have meant like really disconnecting from everyone in my life, which it's, sort of supposed to, but I didn't, you know, what do I know? And I kind of didn't know what was going on. I, I was before lots of years of therapy. It was a painful time in my life. So basically the first times those happened, those things happened, I was like, I kind of, I was meditating a lot when I decided to become a psychologist. It was like, um, you know, three hours a day. And, and my, my father was really, really ill and had been dying for a really long time from diabetes. And it was like, I kept hearing that he was, dead and we'd have these like he'd have this deathbed confessions about all of his problems and then he would i would leave thinking i'd never see him again and he wouldn't die so and that happened like i don't know a dozen times over like five years so it was like it was a very deep experience for uh both of us and a very healing emotional experience for both of us for both of our trauma histories you know uh, and just as humans and about love and how to hold love you know even for somebody who maybe hurt you or 
and, and all that was going on. And I was just like, uh, you know, just kind of getting divorced, uh, the first time. And I'm like, Oh boy. Uh, well, like psychology makes sense. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a way, I mean, it was that crude. It wasn't even like I will become a psychotherapist or I'll become a researcher or blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Like I took a couple of psychology classes while still working in this family business kind of thing. Like, and then like one of the teachers, Cynthia Radnitz is her name. She's a psychologist in New Jersey. She was like, Hey, I like the way you write. Would you write like, um, would you write a paper with me or chapter book chapter? So I wrote a couple book chapters on spinal cord injury and cognitive behavior therapy. And everyone at that time, this is like 92, 93, people were like, don't talk about meditation. You sound like, you know, like a weirdo. Don't do it. So like that was like practically like hidden from the, aggressively hidden from the faculty at that school. And, um, and then I was just like, okay, you know what? I'm going to follow this intuition that, this seems to be about compassion. This seems to be in tune with what I'm learning in, in uh, Buddhist work. This seems to be like a path for me. And then, and it, and then I wound up taking the first year of the doctoral program off because at the same time when I was just like, I don't care anymore. Like w- let the universe take me like letting go of the, you know, the handlebars or whatever, like music kind of came into my life too a lot at that point. And then I just started recording music and I got accepted in the doctoral program, took the first year off and went down to Charleston, South Carolina and spent that year in Charleston, just recording like trip hop music and thinking we were going to do film music. And, and then that wasn't the right path. So came back, started the doctoral program and just let it roll. So it, it was like, it was more like following something that was, it was like a dialogue between like uh, karma and clumsy goofball from new jersey and just like where do i go okay i'll go here you know it was it was that uh open and then it sounds like at some point along there that these worlds merged when you were able to make compassion uh, a focus of yours you know i just kept doing it even though like at some times and i'm not going to out anybody or name any names there were some faculty who were like straight up like inappropriate about it like just like you know uh, what are you, some sort of a drug addict to do? Like, which I wasn't particularly not at the time. Like, you weirdos, and this is weird. I mean, it's like really odd, like kind of like square bullshit about like don't you know what is that freaky weird stuff? Like, so different than the mainstream now. It's almost difficult to imagine. It's like yeah. when you see like really tame rock and roll from the fifties, <laughs> and people are like burning the records. And it's like, what are they talking about? That's the most. Like the most pat, like the lightest part of this with this crew where they were so pissed off about it. So like, then I, I, I went to, uh, my internship, there was a, uh, there was a guy named Rich Amodio and, and he's still there at the, at the, uh, Edith Norse Rogers Bedford, uh, VAMC. And he was really into meditation. And then while I was there on internship and postdoc, the field like started to really pivot. Like people started to go. Like it went from being completely crazy to passe in what seemed like months. It went from people saying, what are you talking about? To like, oh, that thing that everybody's doing. I was like, wow, hey, that's kind of cool, you know. But it, there was energy around it and it was exciting. And then after that, I went to uh, work with 
Bob Leahy in New York, who, whom I'd presented with and written chapters for books that he'd edited. And through him, I met Paul Gilbert and Kelly Wilson and Steve Hayes and all these different folks and started to write books and have access. And he just let me teach the team like whatever I wanted and learn whatever I wanted. And we had act groups and CFT groups and study groups and mindfulness stuff. So it just sort of like exploded, which was really cool. Oh, that's beautiful. It's like you just kept following that whisper until you landed in a place where it could really grow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Every other strategizing thing I've done has not been anywhere as important as like just following this inner sense of uh, rightness that's based on like the eightfold path and the four noble truths and like connection to an inner sense of uh, loving awareness and awakening. And just trusting that tends to take me in better and better directions. My life flourishes, my relationships flourish, uh, I get healthier and I get to help more people. And anytime I get in the way of that and I have a bright idea or I should figure it out or I'll do this or do that. I think that's frustrating for some of my colleagues sometimes because I'll make decisions that don't make sense or they think like I'm, I'm not paying attention or this or that. Like, or why aren't you doing this opportunity or why aren't you working on that book? This would be better. We've thought it through. But even as we're talking, if you're sensitive as you are, I know, Tom, and as a, if you're a listener, you can already feel it coming up out of the body and into the head and into some kind of shoulders like, eh, I have to control, I'm in problem solving mode. Like what we talk about in ACT, like moving away from like values based, you know, like, like, like in the flow of the qualities of doing and being you wish to like realize in the world and more into like a problem solving. Nah, 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 nah. And like, I just do much better by connecting with the flow of what seems to be compassion. I could trust that. I couldn't always trust even loving, wonderful parent, like my mother or like other folks who were like good people. I didn't really have like a, they weren't people in the world who had like a path and said, Hey, you know, do this. This is good for you. You know, like I have a lot of clients in finance or law or people who went to like, you know, Penn or this or that. And they're awesome. And, you know, uh, Stanford, Columbia, Harvard, Yale. And a lot of them come from families for better or worse that were like, this is, these are some options. Here are your options. You should try this. Have you thought about medicine? You know, you should really go into the foreign service or blah, blah, blah. You know, like with your skills in computers, you could go into venture capital. That wasn't, you know, at all, you know, we're coming from like, you know, first generation immigrants. I'm like basically the first generation going to college, you know, like, multi-generational trauma from all over Europe, like coal mining, factory workers, bus drivers, plumbers, people who are just, just barely alive and keeping their emotional shit together. And it's like, you know, all of a sudden this like wonderful, miraculous, intellectual black man walks into my life and is like, here's the Dharma bloop. And I'm like, okay, I get it. If I listen to this, then I can have a life and I can give something more to like the next generation in my family. I can give more to people around me. I can be a part of sharing something beautiful. And so that's, you know, that's been the, you know, and, and it's sloppy and confusing and, you know, making mistakes and being pained along the way. And I don't want to say like, and then everything was easy. It was really difficult. It gets easier, and this is important for us as therapists. And like, the more you not just let go, I find the more I um, 
let go and practice, you know, personal discipline that's about being wholehearted, like letting go and being loving and also practicing as much as I can walking the walk, then life generally is more beautiful. The horrible things still happen. Like you, you get eaten by a shark, you get struck by lightning, you know, political turmoil, pandemics, awful shit happens. It's life. But in that weird context, the more you're able to be present and aware, and then you meet people like Tom or you meet people like Paul Gilbert, you meet people like, you know, my wife, Laura or Steve Hayes, or, or you know, just other people who are, helping each other and helping others to that's, that's where it's at. I think can, I totally agree with you. And I just, it's, it can be so hard to consistently stay in that space in a world and greater context. That seems like it's constantly trying to pull you out of it. Yeah. It's really hard. I mean, but there's different kinds of difficult, there's difficult, like challenging and there's difficult, like agony. You know what I mean? Like there's like, and sometimes we choose the difficult that is agony because, you know, our own sense of shame or self-criticism or inadequacy prevents us from just doing the difficult thing. Hmm. You know, like, like there's difficult, like, wow, how could you learn this piece of music? Like, you know, we're both guitarists. So it's like, oh, look at this. There's a piece of Mississippi uh, John Hurt song. Whoa, that'd be really hard to learn. I'm going to have to practice that a lot. And then I'll, I'll keep making mistakes and my mind will say, Oh, you dummy. Why did you not learn it? Or, you know, you didn't practice enough and it'll trigger. Now that's difficult, right? Or, or getting a PhD is difficult or, you know, having personal discipline is difficult or sobriety is difficult. Staying vegetarian is difficult, but then there's difficult, like, uh, like a brutal hangover is difficult or difficult, like, you know, persistently, Failing to live your values is difficult or difficult, like hiding from anxiety when you have panic attacks or like staying in bed because you're depressed, like any of those things. That's a, that's a different kind of difficult. It's not challenging difficult, but it is hard to live through, like in a different, qualitatively different way. And I would choose, and every day, every moment would choose the difficulty of challenge to the difficulty of torture, like misery and turmoil. And that's kind of the kind of a big step for our clients and for ourselves. Like when can we say, I would prefer the difficulty of discipline to the difficulty of uh, resigned misery? Mm. And how do you pivot out of that? Is it just a, a choice that you really mean in your bones or? Well, you know, it's hard, it's hard to make a decision, you know, like a lot of, I keep mentioning these different schools of thought. It's a very unusual podcast interview. actually, by the way, Tom, like, I really appreciate your approach to this because I very rarely talk about a lot of this stuff, you know, like a lot of years, I guess about now it's depending on how you look at it, either 10 or 17 years, I was really involved with uh, the, the Gurdjieff work, which is part of like where I connect with Trip, And, um, that is a, 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 like a system of meditation and thought that is way ahead of its time. It's like a hundred years ahead of its time, you know, because it's about like a, basically what, 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 what some folks would call like a householder yogi, like how to stay in the world 
not retreating from the world and, and live in this kind of society, but be awake, alert, and alive, not as a renunciate, not even as a teacher, but like a person who wants to have a, a practice so they can wake up. And there's a lot in that school of thought about the difference between being asleep and sleepwalking through life and waking up, just like in Buddhism, like Buddhism means like waking upism. I mean, Bodhi means waking up, right? And if you think about, we, we talk about this, Laura and, and Russ Colts and I, in the, the book on Buddhism and CBT, um, enlightenment or awakening just points to like remembering who you are and being able to proceed in a way where you're, where you're awake. What's the difference between being awake and asleep? Like, as far as we know, one is you're responding to internal things. If you're in a dream, you, you're responding to a symbolic stimuli exclusively. In fact, your muscles have been paralyzed by an endogenous ligand so that you don't get up and act out your dreams. You're responding to imaginary stuff. And in awakeness, you're ostensibly responding to real world stuff, real world contingencies more, you know? And, um, but we aren't responding like act does a good job of describing this like we're fused or we're in a self-narrative rather than in, in an experiential present moment sense of self we're we're in our dream world right we're not awake and if you make a choice in a dream then the dream made the choice you know so part of really living your values is waking up enough to actually make a choice now, this is actually where compassion comes in, funnily, because one of the things that compassion practice does, well, from a spiritual sense, it reminds you of the interconnectedness of all things. But in a neurobehavioral sense, it allows you to feel sufficiently emotionally safe that you can have wisdom because you're not, you know, I have to obey whatever's going through my mind. It lets you, like, slow down and have a broadened perspective where you can go, wait a minute, what in the world has been happening? What do I want? Who am I? Who is making the decision? You can, it's, it's really hard to practice acceptance, mindfulness, personal awakening until you feel like you're not like about to be voted off the island or cast out. Like there's a, there's a embodied state of mindfulness, acceptance, and compassion flowing in and out that allows us to be awake enough to choose. And Gurdjieff said, like, in order to, like, do anything, you need to, like, wake up. And in order to wake up, your everyday self kind of has to die. And I, I like that. That's kind of what I'm talking about. Mm. So to pivot a little bit, something to follow up on compassion. So a question I wanted to ask you, it's like, what are the how do I want to phrase this? Some of my most like dissonant moments are where I feel grossest for lack of a better word is when I find myself closing down my compassion or my heart for strangers or mm -hmm. the person on the side of the road asking for money. How do you approach compassion with strangers? And when you see like the immensity of the suffering around you, I know you live in New York and mm -hmm. there's a big homelessness issue there. Like what does that look like for you to stay compassionate when you're surrounded by a lot of suffering of people that you don't personally know? 
You know, there's a there's a wonderful quote from Neem Karoli Baba, which is never put anyone out of your heart, you know, and 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 yet we can do what we can do. And there's this, you know, the final scene in Schindler's List is like so like comes back to me where he's like about to leave and, you know, all the people he freed are like sort of like or hid and the war's over and they're sneaking him away and they give him a ring that says like, you know, he who saves one person saves the world entire. And it hits him that he could have saved more people and he collapses like it's a, and, and yet everybody hugs him. It's such, such a beautiful moment of compassion. You know, just you did, you did what you could, you did what you could. And if you're to part of this is being able to ground yourself in an inner sense of stability and to be open to the suffering you encounter and to do what you can when you can, and to live it, and to make decisions to discriminate about the choices as much as you can make them that you make. So you grow in your ability to like withstand and be with, and then you take action where you can, and you accept the limits of your own incapacity. You accept the tragedy of being you accept the pain of humanity and that is uh brave in a way you need to know like why didn't you come home last night tom well i noticed a homeless person and then i then i noticed another and then i and then i noticed another and i had experiences in the, the late 90s working with uh a homeless population and substance abusing uh and chemically dependent population kind of because I just needed the money in grad school, to be honest with you. I just needed the money. So I got a, I got a gig, you know, working in inner city, uh, like mental health and rehabs. And I took it too far. You know, like I was like walking out in the street and I was like talking to people and then, you know, taking the bus home with people and then going like trying to find people who didn't show up for the day program and going to these like abandoned warehouses where people were like, or like communities of homeless people who were like really psychotic. And, and there was a part of me that was like, it also taught me a lot about exposure and habituation, by the way, because that would have scared me so much, but then I gradually habituated, but then something hit me like, this isn't how you do this. Like this isn't, this isn't, you, you know, you, you've, you've become fused and personally wrapped up with things that are no longer about your aim. They're kind of almost about you. Like, I can't tolerate this suffering, this pain, so I want to avoid it by feeling like I'm a hero all the time. But that's not helping as much as just setting your course and doing what you can in a way that's healthy and putting your own oxygen mask on first enough so that you can actually survive and not just be like exhausted. There's like this fine line that when it comes to compassion, that is coming from this, uh, very pure and sincere place. And when it's being motivated by our own ego, how do you, how do you discern those? I think you make room for all of them. Like you make room, I and mean, this is a beautiful part of what like Paul Gilbert and compassion focused therapies approaches and why I think it's good for therapists of lots of different stripes, right? To learn is that 
your angry self, your anxious self, your vain self, your narcissistic self, they're all characters in the mandala. They're all members of the band. You know, you don't need to identify with any one of them, but you can appreciate that they all will rise and fall. They'll all have their moment in the sun. And the game is to kind of be the still point in the center of the mandala of your being and like, you know, oh, hey, look at this. What a gas. Now I'm now I'm like annoyed with this person or now now I'm really angry or I think I'm in love or I'm like, you know, or I feel, eh, you know, jealous or and they're all OK. They're all welcome, but they're all like part of an inner community of being just like there's an outer community of being, you know, and. I think that's a big part of it. It's to sort of try to consistently return back to that witness inside of us. That's just watching all of that whole drama play out internally. Yeah, sure. And like, I think hypocrisy is useful. Like, I think it's really good to be a certain kind of a hypocrite, like an honest hypocrite. Like this isn't on video, but you know, I, it occurs to me that the shirt I'm wearing is for the Mercedes AMG Patronus, like formula one team. Right. Cause I like to watch auto racing and it has like the sponsors and the sponsors are like UBS Warburg or blah, blah, blah. And like, these are, you know, neoliberal capitalist entities for a sport that although it, it does is a greener sport now, but I mean, like that's not necessarily like, you know, crunchy granola, Omega Institute, like, you know, stuff that's, that's hypocrisy in a way. And like, <laughs> you know, um, I want to recognize that I don't give away all my time. I'm not a renunciate, you know, and maybe there's a part of me that should or could or would, but that's not the path of this particular being. So I'm, if you're participating at all in, in, in this society, you're a part of suffering. You're, you know, you, there's, I'm looking at the wonderful headphones that you have. I have the same pair and they're like great because they're excellent headphones and they're also not terribly expensive. And one of the reasons they're not terribly expensive is because some of the labor to put the components together comes from people who are really suffering. Same probably with this microphone, right? Or it's the friggin' pardon me, uh, like Apple computer. So we're all a part of suffering. We, uh, and recognizing that is recognizing reality. Yeah. And you're, you're touching on something that is a teaching I love from our, a shared uh, teacher and author that we both love, Ram Das. And it's, if you were to, if you were denied the part of you that really wanted to watch was it a formula one formula one yeah the formula one. one and wear that shirt and yeah. uh kind of bypass that it's almost in terms you're kind of creating more suffering by going into the phony holy mode yeah you're another so trap you can point. get onto tom you're so on point like one of the things i regret about this meeting is that i'm doing so much of talking because of the wonderful style that you have and the openness and the space you're creating and I want to learn so much more about you because you just seem like such an amazing person. You're so like hitting these points, you know? Yeah. There's a quote from Ramdas, which you, I'm sure you've heard, which is like, there's nothing worse than a horny celibate. Like yeah. being a brahmacharya means like you give up meat because you don't want to eat it anymore. And like when I, I practiced like controlled drinking for like eight years because I thought I had to watch my drinking. And then only after eight years of having like, you know, 
two or three drinks tops. Like, was I like, you know, I don't want to even do this. The same with, uh, you know, uh, becoming a vegetarian, same with a lot of things. Like it was at a point where I'm like, no, I, this is not working for me. Now, look, sometimes your life's falling apart. And like, if, if you have like an opiate problem and you're hearing this, I'm not suggesting you should just go on using what I'm suggesting though, is in what Tom is suggesting, Ramda is suggesting is that like, we make room for our, for all these parts of ourselves and, and we find the part of us that is the true north compass of our soul and we move from that place. And when we do, without self-abnegation or self-punishment or avoidance, miraculous things can happen. And when we try to like put on some other, you know, fake identity, like look at me, I'm spiritual bypassing, then, you know, it doesn't usually work. Yeah. We have to be mindful of that as therapists too, because we could reinforce that process by quickly shifting into problem solving mode and behavior change. As soon as you, you meet a client instead of really helping someone start where they're at. Absolutely. And, and making room for even act therapists or even like acceptance based or mindfulness, you know, when people tell you, Oh, how was the week? Oh, it's really bad. I was really anxious. You know, we can move right into, oh, that's bad that you were anxious or mm-hmm. oh, it was really bad that I would, you know, like, mm, that's probably not the best use of our time. And, yes. and also, like you said, behavior change, like, uh, you know, we have, maybe we need to meet people where they are. They are exactly, I say this when I'm in supervision with you, the client is always where they're supposed to be, yes. you know, for that session, because that's their job. They come in where they are and, you know. If we fight where they are, like, you're supposed to do the technique I wanted to try. That's, that's like silly. It's a silly yeah. thing we do. And we can only offer that to the client if we're able to do that with ourselves. Yeah, yeah, mostly. <laughs> mostly. <laughs> I, I have to attest, there were probably years where I, I was better at teaching things than practicing them, you know. Uh-huh. But, but we can only really do it. Like we can only do it like fully. Uh, I think it helps to do it yourself. You know? Oh yeah. And there's a huge spectrum there that we probably are always sitting, right? Oh, totally. You know, yeah. if, so I'm, who, 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 if your therapist listening to this or like, if you haven't, you know, you'll be talking to a client about something they're trying to do. And you part of you goes like, Oh my God, if I could only accomplish that. Yes. Yeah. And the thing, the next thing you hear yourself say is the exact thing you need to hear for yourself three hours later. <laughs> yep. 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 And if you now here's an interesting thing. This is like pro tip, right? For us as therapists, if we're going to accept all the parts of us, and if there's like, for our personal practice, we're exactly where they mean. At first that can be like, Oh no, I'm fused with who I am as this sort of big figure for this blah, blah, blah. And I shouldn't need to work on that. Or you could go, Oh yeah. Hello. Like, like let's say cluttered part, like everybody deals with clutter and organization during the pandemic, like, cause we're all home all the time and we have to like constantly be, you know, it's, a lot of people have told me that and that's a bugbear for me cause I like environments to be neat. And there's certain rooms in the house, which have become like way stations for Amazon boxes and books. And, and I'm like, uh, rather than be paralyzed by that, just sort of like, Hey, okay, this is a part of me. Look what I discovered in, in the day of work how beautiful I can work on it. Mm, yeah. And if we're able to do that with clients, we can really another Ramdas teaching of not seeing a client as someone who needs to be helped and really creating an environment where we're both on the journey together. And I want to be mindful of time here. And I was wondering if uh, 
you'd be willing, you do these really incredible guided meditations or just experiential compassion focused exercises. And I was wondering if we could end by you, you could take it wherever you want, but just maybe something that would help me and listeners connect to that space of compassion that you spent so much time working on. Sure. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll do something a little different, which is, um, some of the stuff that we're working on in CFT treatment development, compassion focused therapy treatment development, and some of the things that Paul Gilbert's been working on. And there are also like things you see in, in really old Buddhist practices too. We're going to do a brief uh, visualization around the different ways that we can experience compassion. So let's begin. And we'll begin with is it okay to just dive right in? Is there right? Yes, so please. Much. So we'll begin by allowing our eyes to close, establishing in a position where we're comfortable with our back straight and supported. And we'll bring part of our attention to the soles of the feet on the floor. And then up to the top of the head. And to everything in between. thoughts and feelings and physical sensations. And we'll notice the sounds around us in the room. And the sounds farther away. And the sounds farther away even than that. And breathing in, knowing we're breathing in. And breathing out, knowing that we're breathing out. And as you're breathing in, it's as if you were filling the body with awareness. Filling the body with awareness. And as you exhale, it's as if you're letting go. And imagining yourself sitting somewhere that feels safe and comfortable, a place that seems to be a manifestation of compassion and kindness, strength, could be a place in the woods with the sunlight coming in between the trees or beside the water of a lake or the ocean. But you're home here and you're safe. Feeling yourself growing heavier in the chair. Just being present here together. And in your mind, you can see a being which represents compassion, represents a sensitivity to the presence of suffering and a willingness to take action. Sort of the way the heat haze forms in the summer, you can see this kind of ripples in the visual field, this wavy light, just becoming a being of pure compassion and light just in front of you. 
And it's it's almost shifting in form and color the way a rainbow would. And at first, you see a being that is nurturing and warm. Maybe someone from your memory or from a book or movie. What is compassion like when it's caring and soft and nurturing? You can see the warm smile on this being's face. And as you breathe in, you're breathing in the compassion of this presence. And as you breathe out, you're releasing, sending some compassion back. And next, you see this being is a protective form of compassion. This is a person who always has your back, who's never judging you, who wants what is good for you, what is healthy and supportive, and is going to protect you from negative influences, from destructive influences, from harm of any kind. What does this being look like when it's a protective, compassionate presence, a protector and a guardian? What does it feel like in the body to be in the presence of the wisdom and strength and commitment of this guardian of compassion? And we exhale, we release that form of compassion. And next, we see a being which is a joyful expression of compassion. It's a smile on this being's face. They seem almost playful, very light, very free from stress and distress. And they're just inviting you into this. Like a being of pure light and energy, just appreciating the joy of contributing, of sharing and caring and, and playing together. It's on a journey. This is a being that's on a journey. And as you breathe in, you can feel, you feel yourself becoming this, this being of light and joy as well. As you exhale, it's like you're releasing any unnecessary tension. It's as if there's a, an uplifting music surrounding you. As if you look out and the day is sunnier than you would expect. You can see the vividness of the colors, the inspiration and the lightness in your heart and mind. And you realize that all of the people listening to this podcast, whether they're separate in time or space, and all of the people that you've ever talked with about compassion and awakening, all of them are connected in this moment, all this being of light being of joy and light. It's moving out into the world like one, one diamond with many facets, one body in many, many different places in many different times, all at once, all the same, looking into the hearts and minds of other beings who are also just the same, but they don't know it. And there's this secret, this gift that we share to wake up like, like music that's getting passed, like some beautiful transformational light that's being shed throughout the world, that we're loving awareness. How joyful to be that loving awareness together. And as you come back to resting in the breath, 
With every out breath, we just let go of the imagery, we let go of the imagination, just come to your body. Bring part of your attention to your soles of the feet on the floor, to your weight in the chair, hearing the sounds around you as far away as you can. And then when you're ready, exhaling, releasing, and we'll complete that practice. So open our eyes, stretch if we need, and we'll just debrief and proceed to complete our work on our podcast today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Tom. Yeah. That was beautiful. Yeah, thanks. I just want a little hat tip to Paul Gilbert, who's been working with us, uh, you know, about these different types of, you know, different parts of compassion, how it shows up in the world, and that it's okay for it to be joyful as well. I, something I haven't explored uh, enough, I think is using visualization as a tool for meditation. Um, That was really powerful there. And I think it's a sign that I should continue pulling that thread. Yeah, that's great. I highly encourage it. It's a, it's a whole world. It's so much, so much to play with there. So yeah. And I I really do hope we stay in touch, stay in in contact and, you know, talk, Uh, psychology, transformation, music, all these things. It's a real joy to be invited into the wonderful work you're doing. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, it's a true honor for me to get to speak with you. So I will for sure take you up on that. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's got me out of my mind. It's got me seeing trees breathe. It's got me learning how heaven and hell are both inside of me. It's got me feeling the love that I bottled so deep. When the entire world kept feeding on my grief.